Good morning. Good to see you today. My name is Dave. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, welcome to Cedar Mill this morning. It's a great day to be here, because even though we're continuing in a series that we've been in for a number of weeks, today we're kind of starting a little mini-series within a series. That's how, that's how complicated we're getting these days. we got series within series now. Um, but our overall series is called Unlikely, and it's about how God works in unlikely ways through unlikely people all throughout Scripture, time and time again. In fact, one of the conversations we're having behind the scenes is, is there anyone God uses who's not unlikely? And that's actually kind of something to think about. Uh, so you could really pre- preach on anything you want, which is why this series is so fun as a preacher and also terrifying. But um, one of the things that we're talking about, it's not just that God uses unlikely people, but as we explore these stories... We're seeing how God uses unlikely people. Like, what does it look like to be used by God? If God were to use me, what might I experience? Because from like 30,000 feet, that sounds amazing. God wants to use you. And you're like, yeah, he does. That sounds awesome. Sign me up. I mean, how cool would it have been to be someone like Gideon or Deborah or Samuel or Jeremiah all characters we've looked at. But then we get a little closer to the story and we start to think, oh, that's what it looks like for God to use you. That's what it means. And it's less appealing. It's not as easy. There's a cost to it. There's struggle and stress and a kind of a strength of faith that you need if you want to be used by God. And today, like I said, we're starting a little mini-series. We're going to be two weeks looking at the story of an unlikely character named Esther. And Esther will show us once again that to be used by God means that life will not always go as expected. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me to Esther chapter 1. As you turn, Esther chapter 1, I'll say a couple things about Esther overall. One, Esther is a phenomenal story. There are are layers and layers of truth and application for us in this book. We are not even going to get close to mining its depths. We're going to pull out some wonderful things, but there is so much in this story. In fact, at an ancient council of rabbis, they gathered together and they talked about Scripture. They loved Scripture. And they said, there are six books that will be read for all eternity. The five books of the Torah and the book of Esther. That's how significant the rabbis thought this book was. And Esther is challenging and it's captivating because it's, it's filled with intrigue. There's sexism and racism and classism and religious persecution and then God at work in the midst of all of those things. Esther is the story of the underdog, like so many stories in the Bible. Esther is set in exile. That means that the people are not living where they wanted to live. Uh, The Babylonians come, conquer the nation of Israel, haul the Jewish people away as captives. Then the Persians come and defeat the Babylonians, and some of the Jews get to go home. They get to return to Jerusalem. Ezra, Nehemiah, right? That's what those books are about. But not all go back. Some remain. And the book of Esther is about those who remained specifically Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires ever to rule the world. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Right, we need to understand that Esther is teaching us 
something significant because it's about how to live in a world that doesn't support your ethnic or religious beliefs. If you are living in Portland, Oregon, in post-Christian America, this is a good story to read and understand because Esther is asking some, some significant questions, some very relevant questions for you and me, I might say. What does it look like for a religious and ethnic minority to live in a society that often opposes them, that persecutes them, that does not share their beliefs and values? See, if, if you are a religious minority living in a dominant culture that has a, a different moral and spiritual and ethical view of the world than you do, one of the questions is, how do I live there? How do I follow God there? How do I relate? Do I sort of remove myself and withdraw from society? Esther will seem to say, can't really do that. Do you just acclimate and try to fit in and you know, fly under the radar? Esther will show us that doesn't always work. Do you sort of protest the culture and, and you know, constantly criticize everything that you see? Esther will say that's not profitable or charitable. So what do we do? How do we live here? How does she live there? What does it look like? We're going to learn about this from Esther. And one of the things we'll see real clearly is it's not easy to live as a follower of God in a non-God-following world is not simple or clean or neat or painless. It is hard. And it is fuzzy and it is often not clear. So that's the second thing. And finally, before we jump in, I want you to know this. Esther is a real story, like a historical story, but it's communicated to us kind of like a play. So today you are at the theater right? And there are acts and there are scenes and there are characters and there's drama and intrigue and there's comedy even. And so for the next two weeks, I'm going to preach Esther this way. I want you to think of it this way. Today, the, 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 the curtains of the stage are going to open on act one and we'll have a number of different scenes. And then the curtains will close. We'll have intermission all week. And then next week, we're going to come back for act Two, there's refreshments out in the world during intermission for you if you need them. Okay. Today, though, we're going to primarily kind of get, get the setting. We're going to set the stage and we're going to meet the main characters and we're going to learn a few things from them. So let's jump in. Esther chapter 1, that's a lot of stuff up front, but here we go. Esther 1, 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Can you tell already this guy has an inflated ego? Uh, yeah, the setting of our story today is 480 years before Jesus. It's the height of the Persian Empire. Some of you remember the movie 300. If you watched it, don't confess it in church. But you'll remember that it's, it's, this is Xerxes. This is him. He's in that movie, like the grand, majestic, world-dominating sort of God king. That's, that's who this is. So right away, we meet Xerxes, and he's the king of this empire, 
And our author wants us to understand in these first verses, this guy is a big deal. He is the picture of power. At this point in history, his his kingdom is bigger than the Babylonians or the Assyrians before him. It stretches from Europe all the way to India, all the way down into Africa. You see, right away, we're, we're, we're understanding this. Esther is a story. Esther is a play about power. It's about speaking to power and confronting power and challenging power when power is wrong. And as we get into this story, we find out what this powerful king and what his culture truly values. We're told that he's a party, not just any party, a 180-day palace bash. Can you imagine a party that lasts half a year? Anyone here ever thrown a party for multiple days even? You're exhausted. How tired were these people? So people are tired in this story. Yeah, On the heels of this 180-day party, he decides to throw a seven-day party, which I think is extreme in and of itself. Um, and we're told some details about this seven-day party. It's in the, like, the palace garden, and the pillars of the garden were decorated with silver, and the goblets were of gold, and they're all handcrafted. Even the floor is adorned with costly stones. Verse 8 says, By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Friends, this king is so wealthy that he can just pour wine for six months straight into handcrafted gold goblets. And we're only eight verses in, and we have this very clear picture. Susa is a place where looking good and impressing people and showing off is a very important thing. To be rich and wealthy and powerful is impressive. See, friends, when it comes to our values, resources reveal. Our resources reveal what we really care about. Jesus says that there's a connection, like a bungee cord connection between our hearts and our treasure. And this is a a powerful biblical principle for us to consider because we, you and me, all of us sitting in here are masters of self-deception. We love to deceive ourselves. We love to tell ourselves, hey, you know what I really value? If I asked you today, what do you really value? You'd say some really, really good stuff, some really spiritual things, Some stuff that sound, you know, you talk about things that sound so noble. You know what I care about, Pastor Dave? I care about this and this and this. And the Bible says, well, if so, let's see where you're spending your money. Let's see where you're spending your time and where you're allocating your resources. And and in this, this story, we learn that it's not just an individual, but an entire nation that has misplaced values. Persia, much like our country, cares about nice stuff that makes us look good and feel comfortable and impress others. That's King Xerxes. Verse nine. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. We don't hear a lot about Queen Vashti's banquet, but we do meet her in this verse. She's our second main character, and she has sort of an abbreviated role in this play. This is like, you know, like a, a, a very limited role. If you were trying auditioning for this play, you 
hardly have any lines. It's just like a cameo spot. And yet, her role is so significant because it lets us know what's happening here. She is used to set the stage for what is to come. We're told in verse 10 that when King Xerxes was in the high, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, we all know what that means, right? 187 days of endless wine drinking. You can imagine. I think, actually, I think my spirits would be really down and bad at that point. But apparently, he's, you know, high tolerance. King Xerxes, he's going for it. He's in high spirits. He sends for the queen to be brought over from her party to his party. Separate parties for the guys and the gals, right? Bring her over, he says. You see, for 187 days, the king has been showing off all of his possessions. And now he wants to show off his ultimate possession. And what do you think he wants people to notice? What do you think he wants all of his drinking buddies to notice about Queen Vashti? What do you think he's he's after here? Do you think he's like, guys, you've got to meet the queen. She is such, I mean, you're going to be so impressed with what a kind and caring person she is. Do you think he's like, you know, let's bring, I mean, she has such strength of character. Wait till you experience her. You know, does he want the opportunity to show off Queen Vashti's amazing intelligence? No, verse 11, it says, he wants her to come in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. See, right away in this story, we're being told what women are valued for and what the culture expects of them. And oh, how some things have still not changed. See, this is a culture where men are judged by their wealth and power, and women are valued for their sexual appeal, and their overall beauty. 2,500 years later, and we're oh so different, aren't we? Verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Now, I don't care who you are in this room, male or female, you got to love Queen Vashti. And I was going to say, let me talk to you young people in here today, but there's only a few of you. So let's just talk to all of us, because this really does apply to all of us. The culture we live in, much like the culture of Susa, will try to tell you, no matter who you are, who you must be and what you must do in order to have value and importance and significance. And the message will come through loud and clear every day on television, on the internet, on Instagram, my kids on TikTok. Look this way, act this way, talk this way, dress this way, drive a vehicle that has this logo on it, and then you will matter, you will be somebody. Come fit in our box, come do what we expect, and then we will give you significance. That's the culture of Susa, that's the culture of America. But take a lesson from Queen Vashti here because she is not willing to allow her significance to be defined by shallow external judgments from others. Come parade myself in front of all your drunken buddies during Miller time? No way. Friends, are you allowing, here's a great question for us this morning, are you allowing our world to determine your self-worth or do you know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. See, we gather here today as God's people, and one of the things about God's people, if you're a guest or visitor, you can just kind of listen in, right? 
One of the things about God's people is we say, no, the world doesn't get to define us. Our king, our Lord defines us. We don't have value because of what they say. We have value because of what he says about us. And Queen Vashti says, I refuse to let this culture define me. Verse 12. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. In verses 13 and following, we're told that he actually assembles a council of advisors to help him figure out what to do about this disobedient wife of his. Now, remember when I told you this this play had some comedy in it? It, it, I'm not going to make it that funny, but just trust me. If this was a play, this is funny, funny stuff. Because here's the most powerful man in the world, but he can't even control his own wife. He can't even, he doesn't even have the courage to have a conversation with his own queen. Vashti's not coming. She's disobeying. What do I do now? Get, gather a council of advisors. I mean, I guess I, if you're a husband out there, you can kind of relate. Sometimes I do feel like I need a council of advisors, so I guess I should more, have more grace. And yet, come on, dude, really? All right. Again, we're getting a very clear picture here. Even though externally Xerxes looks strong and confident and powerful and resolved, internally, deep inside where it matters, he's actually just weak and insecure and vulnerable and very easily swayed. Here's what the council says to him. If it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. This is how councils talk, I guess, in my world. And, And let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. See, friends, this is not just the story of one woman. This is the story about what's expected from all women across the empire everywhere. And in Susa, the message goes out loud and clear. If you venture outside of your role and push the limits, bad things will happen to you. And it can be like that in our world as well, can't it? If you don't play by the rules, if you cross certain people, if you say or do things that our culture doesn't approve of, if you don't follow or conform, there will be a cost and you will pay the price. Friends, I want us to understand that this is not just a story about individuals. This is a story about a community. This is a story about a city and a country and an empire whose values are not in line with God's values. And it's a story about some people who are being called by God to courageously push back. This is not just a story about God's people in Susa in 480 BC. This is a calling and challenge for God's people in America in 2022 AD. This is about you and me and our church and how we must stand for what God values in our world, even when there's a high cost, even when what we say is unpopular. Doesn't mean we're looking for a fight. It just means that we will stand our ground and speak the truth of God. And let me just pause here. This is going to, this is going to be a little bit of a rant just for a second. So if, you know, if you're not in a ranty mood, you can just, you know, read your Bible. But we are, we are here, we're called something, we named ourselves Cedar Mill Bible Church. Cedar Mill Bible Church. One of the things I'm, I'm convicted of these days is how often Christians 
are living and acting and taking positions in our world that actually don't reflect the Bible. We are Cedar Mill Bible Church. And so when we go out to say, like, we're, we're going to take a stand here. We're going to fight for this. We're going to be all about this. This is what's going to really matter to us in the world. It should probably reflect the values of the Bible. So just be careful, Christians. Be, be careful, Cedar Millers. Is that what we call ourselves? Cedar Millions. Cedar those of you who call this your church family, that you really are mining the scriptures for the heart of God and for the posture of God in this world so that you're fighting for God, not just in his name, for the things that you learned about on your favorite news broadcast. See what I'm saying? Because we are Cedar Mill Bible Church and the Bible has so much for us. The Bible will challenge us. The Bible will encourage us, and the Bible will point us in the right direction. The Bible will help align us with the heart of God and the heart of Christ as it's to be lived out in this world. Okay, rant over. Esther chapter 2, verse 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Then let the young women, or sorry, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king. That sounds good, he said. And he followed it. 127 provinces, women from all over the empire, are now going to be kind of brought in, added to the king's harem, and they are going to compete for a Miss Medes and Persians beauty contest. And in the end, the girl who pleases the king most will win and become the ultimate trophy wife. Like every girl's dream, right? Now there was, verse 5, in the city of Citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. At this point, friends, we meet two more characters, right? We have King Xerxes, we have Queen Vashti, and now we meet Mordecai and Hadassah, a young, orphaned Jewish girl being raised by her cousin. And at this point, I think it's important for us to notice that we have shifted out of the palace. <laughs> we have, we've gone from like, from like royalty to rags. This is like shifting from forest heights to forest grove. No slam against forest grove. I actually really like it, but I'm just a little different place, right? This is a story about people who have been hauled away from their, from their country and brought to a foreign land to be treated as less than. Think about that. This is a story about people who are not part of majority culture. And I bring this up because sometimes I think we miss how often the Bible asks us to consider these kinds of societal realities. Sometimes I think we miss how, how many times in Scripture we are invited and challenged to think about life in this world from the perspective of the other from the perspective of the downtrodden. Over and over and over again, the scriptures seem to say, don't just think about the world from your perspective, especially if you're 
in a place of privilege or power or comfort. Think about the world from their perspective, from the other's perspective. It's in scripture just, and we start looking for it. It's just all throughout from beginning until end. It's right here in this story as well. And, and I'll say something now that, that some of you will love and some of you may not like, but I think it's worth saying. February is Black History Month. And for me, that's like, here's the deal. What an opportunity for those of us who are part of majority culture to apply this story and this biblical truth and to do what I believe the Bible teaches us time and time again to do and to just take a moment to say, I want to think through life in this world through the lens of someone else, through the lens of someone who's not a part of majority culture. What would it, like to, what would it be like to live here? What, is, what does history look like for these people that aren't like me? Friends, to flip our, our mindset around and think about the other. Because do you know who did this sort of thing constantly? You know who the master of doing that was? You know, like the, the greatest person in all of history and time at sort of flipping around and saying, let me think about it from your perspective. You're not the popular person. You're not the powerful person. You're not the valued person in this culture. But I want to sort of understand the world from your perspective. I want to see what life is like from the leper's perspective or the Samaritan's perspective or the Roman's perspective or the adulterer's perspective. Who's the person who did that best? I think we all know it's Jesus, right? And our mission here is to become like Jesus and make him known. <laughs> to live the way he would live, to have his heart and perspective, right? So what a chance for us. Middle of verse 8. Esther also was taken, listen to that, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai who had charge of the harem. So one of the things that's, what's, that's kind of cool about this story is how Esther is set in such stark contrast to King Xerxes. We meet King Xerxes, then we meet Esther, and they could not be more different. To all appearances, he's strong and rich and powerful and in control, and she's vulnerable and poor and susceptible and seemingly defenseless. He calls the shots, she obeys the orders. He's the taker, she's the taken. And yet, God loves to do unlikely things through unlikely people. And so one of the messages of this story I think we can take is this. Don't judge a book by its cover. It's one of those statements that's like you think, is don't judge a book by its co cover a biblical principle? Where's the verse that says don't judge a book by its cover? There's not one. And yet, it's a very biblical principle time and time again. Appearances can be deceiving Things are not always what you think they are, and they certainly aren't in Susa. Because in the end, it's this little lady that will leave a lasting legacy. Say that ten times fast. Because in the end, it's this little lady that will leave a lasting legacy. She's the one, not King Xerxes, that people will remember throughout history. And so now Esther is in the king's harem, she's under the leadership of this guy named Haggai, and it says she pleased Haggai and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Verse 12. 
Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Now, I read a large section there, and I want to sort of summarize what I think the message here is, what we're being told. We're being told, first of all, Again, it's reinforced. Where, where is Esther's value? <laughs> like, what makes her important to this culture, to this city, to this king? Her beauty, her physical appearance. And, and what should her chief objective be? Like, what is her goal in this moment? Why, why is she being put through all of these treatments? Why is she be, being given special food? Why does twice in this chapter, twice, once here and once later, does Mordecai tell Esther to conceal her nationality and her family background? Why has she changed her name? We've noticed that her name has changed. She's introduced as Hadassah, and then suddenly now she's Esther. Here's the, here's the truth. Here's the principle, friends. Here's what we're being told. Susa is all about conformity. King Xerxes and Persia and this capital city of Susa, the message here is, come be like us. Come fit into our box. Don't look different. Don't be different. Don't eat different. Don't act or think or talk different. And if you are different, we will like beauty treatment all those differences right out of you. Because the value of the kingdom of Susa is don't be who you are, just conform. But friends, the value of the kingdom of God is let him use who you are, who he made you to be in order to transform this world to be the place he wants it to be. See, Susa says, don't, Susa says, don't rock the boat, just fit into our world, but God says, I'll use you to change the world. Friends, how often in the Bible are our differences celebrated? How often throughout Scripture are we told that the things that are different about us are God-given gifts and that they're wonderful how often are we, are we told that our diversities complement one another? In fact, listen to this from Revelation chapter 7. This is a vision of like the kingdom come in all of its fullness. Like when God's kingdom gets here and it looks the way it's supposed to look. It says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Because this is why one of our seven distinctives at Cedar Mill is engage inclusively. We grow, listen, we grow and reflect God's heart when we embrace people different than ourselves. We don't say come here and conform. We say come be who God's made you so that we can all be transformed because we grow and reflect God's heart when we embrace people different than ourselves. We don't want to be a church that's about conformity. We want to be a church that's about transformity. I don't think that's a word. Young people, again, maybe all people, don't just assimilate. Don't just be who the world is, is pressuring you to be. Be who God is calling you to be. And yes, sometimes that means you need to be a part of culture. Esther is a part of culture. She doesn't fight every single battle along the way. She picks her moments and picks her spots. But always, as a part of this society and culture and nation, be ready to differentiate yourself for God and his plans and his justice and his kingdom in this world. And again, if you want to know what that is, read the Bible. 
All right, final thing today. We're almost done. Actually, two things here at the end. Two things at the end of chapter three. One, and this is kind of a big one, but I'm just going to mention it. We'll talk more about it next week. Esther, Esther wins Persia's next top model, and she becomes the queen. And so all of a sudden, this little orphaned Jewish girl is now the queen of the most powerful empire in the history of the world. Wow. I mean, if you're watching this thing and you really understand who this little girl is, you're thinking, what a coincidence. At the end of chapter 3, we read, during the time, during the time, this, this kind of time when Esther's become the queen, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Now, again, this is just sort of a little random fact that's tossed in at the end of chapter 3. Like, just kind of like, what? Okay, this thing happened. And one of the things I want you to notice, kind of big picture all of a sudden, is that when you, when you read the book of Esther and when you watch this play, God is never mentioned, not even once. In all the chapters of the book of Esther, some of you are going to start thumbing through and see if I'm right. I promise you it's true. He's not even, I mean, he's not even sort of alluded to. It's not even that he's not mentioned. It's not just that his name isn't said. It's that he's not even alluded to. He's just not in the book at all. Like in some books of the Bible, we get this sort of message very clear. This is happening and God's at work. Like, these things are going down, and God's behind it all. Not so in the book of Esther. In fact, the message of the book of Esther seems to be, it just so happened. Like, what a coincidence. It just so happened that Xerxes had an argument with the queen and decided to get a new one. It just so happened that Esther was selected. It just so happened that she won the favor of the king. It just so happened that Mordecai was sitting by the gate when these two guys just so happened to have this idea of assassinating the king, and he just so happens to hear about it. He just so happens to tell Esther, who tells the king, who gives Mordecai credit, like, what, how, who could have guessed it? What are the chances? And here's the message. Esther's written this way on purpose, friends. To say, even in a world, a world like Portland, Oregon, maybe, that doesn't believe in the power of God, God is still at work. <laughs> even when things just feel like coincidence, God is still orchestrating those coincidences for his plans and his purposes. So even when you're tempted to think it's just a coincidence or it just so happened, remember this, there's always a God behind that just so happened. And, and think about Hadassah. I mean, just think about her for a second. If you kind of like, if we, just, if we had to do like a side kind of bar and just like dive into her story, here's a little girl whose parents have both died. Just kind of mentioned, kind of offhand. But think about that for a minute. She's an orphaned little girl. She's lost both of her parents. Think about the tragedy of that. Think about the impact of that. And yet, once again, I think it's more than just a coincidence because maybe God will use that loss in her life to build resolve and resiliency into this little girl that at some point down the road, she might just need. And think about this. One day, she's just living her life out in Forest Grove, hanging out. She's cute. 
She's interested in a little boy down the street. He passed her a note. If you like me, say check yes. If you don't, check no. Right? She's just doing her thing. And then all of a sudden, the king's men show up and haul her away to the palace to be in the king's harem, away from everyone and everything she's ever known. She's terrified. And yet again, maybe that moment is more than a coincidence because maybe behind all that coincidence is a God at work. And so the message isn't just for her, it's for you and me. What about you? You see, maybe it's more than a coincidence. Maybe it's more than a coincidence that those people moved in next door. Maybe it's more than a coincidence that you didn't get that new job. Maybe it's more than a coincidence that things have been hard lately. Maybe it's more than a coincidence that your diagnosis came back the way it did. Maybe it's more than a coincidence that you're here this morning. You see, maybe your life is not, it just so happened. Maybe your life is in the hands of an almighty sovereign God and he is working and active and using even the little coincidences of your life to do something great for you and for him and for his kingdom in this world. And so our challenge today as we close act one and move towards intermission, is this. Open your eyes to where God is at work in your world this week. Because it's not just a coincidence. The world is not just a bunch of random events. And maybe, just like Esther and Mordecai, you can be a part of what God is doing in and around your office, your neighborhood, your home, your church. Next week, the plot will thicken and there will be more coincidences and we will get a chance to see more of what God is orchestrating and doing through the lives of those who have enough faith and courage to trust him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, today, we sincerely do come before your throne right now recognizing that you are the Lord of heaven and earth, that you are King of kings, that you are the Alpha and the Omega. Father, we repent for sometimes living our lives independently of you and seeing the events of, of the day or the week as just random occurrences or random events. Instead of looking for you, instead of seeing you behind the scenes or at work in the midst of all that, we were, that we're facing, God. So, so open our eyes. Holy Spirit, come open our eyes to see what you're, you're doing, Lord. And then empower us to have faith and hope and trust, even when we don't understand, even when we do not see the full plan unfolded yet, God, to know that you're at work. Give us that sense. Give us that, that hope. Help us to cling to it especially in those coincidences that we wouldn't hope for, Father. That's our prayer. We need it. We need you. Open our eyes this week, Lord. Help us to see you. Help us to just get a glimpse of where you're at work. And then use us, God. Use us for your glory and your plans in this world where we live. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.